Casey Selsky's here. He fought with the FSSF at the Battle of Anzio. They were among the first Allied soldiers to enter Rome and liberate it from the Nazis. He's here today with one of his 11 children, the former mayor of Alito, Illinois, Mayor Lee Selsky. When Casey came home from World War II, like a lot of the genuine heroes of war, he didn't have much to say. He left the war on the battlefield. Forty years later, his family coaxed the stories out of him. And 50 years after his return from World War II, Casey and Lee traveled back to Europe, back to the places where he'd fought, to visit the towns that the force had liberated. Near the Anzio beachhead, an Italian man realized finally who they were. The man dropped to his knees crying and thanked Casey Selsky. Then he pointed to a plaque written in Italian and English trying to explain what this was all about to his own son. This is one of the soldiers, he said, who saved our village. It was 50 years after the war had ended. Casey Selsky turned to his son Lee and said, all these years I wondered what I was doing here. Now I know why we fought. The first special service force, yes. The first special service force were all volunteers. The astonishing fact is not how many of them didn't finish, but how many survived. They operated under cover of darkness, deep behind enemy lines, using unconventional warfare tactics in support of other units. Every mission was a suicide mission. Units suffered 2,300 casualties, more than 130% of their original combat strength. But it never lost a mission, not one. The first special service force. The force existed for only two years, but its spirit lives on. The Green Berets, the Army Rangers, even the Navy SEALs, and the Marine Force Recon units, Canadian Special Operations Regiments, and in all of today's special forces. For decades after the war ended, the story of these Canadian and American heroes and how they helped save the world was classified top secret. Now we know. And on behalf of the Congress of the United States and freedom-loving people around the world, we say thank you. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me for this podcast, Jeff DePazzi. Uh, Jeff served for a number of years in the Canadian military. Uh, Jeff, how's it going, brother? It's going good. Uh, much gratitude for having me on, John. I really appreciate it. Uh, no worries at all. I want to thank you for coming on. So, Jeff, how many years did you serve in the Canadian military? A total of 13 years, John. Okay. And was all of that in Special Forces? No, I did spend a few years in the uh, Reg Force as an airborne infantier. And then I spent the better part of a decade in the uh, SF realm. Okay. So can we start kind of um, in the beginning for you, um, if, if you can talk about where you're from and, and kind of what motivated you to join the military? Yeah, well, I, I guess we'll go right back. So I was born and raised in northern Ontario, Canada. Grew up with, you know, with all the wilderness a young boy could ever need in the land of minus 40 centigrade or Fahrenheit. Uh, 
then I went through uh, turbulent teenage years, as some of us end up in the uh, operator world do, you know, drugs, alcohol, extreme sports, arrested a few times. And really, this is where all the things I learned as a child that I really liked doing, you know, playing with guns, being outdoors and all this started to take a bit of a turn because I, I got arrested, John, and I was there on the other side of the glass and my mom came, see me in the orange jumpsuit. And just to see the disappointment in her eyes, I, I knew at that moment, okay, time to start sorting things out. In the back burner, I always knew I wanted to eventually get into the military. Anyways, it, it still didn't start there. You know, found my way into college, took chemical engineering, computer systems engineering, carried on with the extreme sports, got my pilot's license. You know, I was still kind of looking for that quote-unquote right time to, to join. And then... One of the things that kind of kept me in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s was, was that Canada was still doing a lot of peacekeeping. We weren't doing the things that at that time in my life I really wanted to be doing as a gunfighter, as an infantry. So I actually started putting in my paperwork for the American forces. Really? And uh, yeah, and I remember I was sitting in class, computer systems, and we were watching the news, and that was the day the uh, Twin Towers uh, came down. And so my paperwork got stopped because the American military stopped taking foreigners, uh, rightfully so. Uh, so I had to kind of, okay, now what am I going to do? And then another thing came up. My, my father had to get some surgeries. He got his hip replaced and had to take care of his family business or family business. Sorry. And while I was doing that, I was kind of in a holding pattern. You know, I wasn't doing exactly what I wanted to do. I was dabbling around, still kind of figuring it out. And uh, I'd gone into the Canadian Recruiting Center, and then I found out about this unit, JTF2, because I, I didn't even know we had a Special Forces unit. I, I thought our SF unit was disbanded in the 80s or whatever when the, our Airborne was um, disbanded. And uh, I knew right away, okay, this is where I'm going. Signed up, you know, basic training, um, did awesome there, battle school, all that kind of stuff, Airborne, et cetera, et cetera. Went through the uh, the reg force. It was a good time, you know, deployed to Afghanistan, to the Panjway, the uh, spiritual heartland of the Taliban. And then when I came home, uh, onto selection for JTF2, and then kicked around there for a while, some deployments, you know, sniper troop, jump master, et cetera, et cetera, all that kind of fun stuff. And then uh, here we are now. So when you join... In, into the military, can you go straight into uh, special operations or do you have to first serve in the, in the army first? You have to first serve. So you can do kind of a couple different things. You can, they had removed it for a while where you could spend some time in the reserves and then go, but there's no x-ray program or nothing like that yet for the direct entry. So you do have to go through the reg channels. That is changing. Um, right now on their in their on their plate in what we call Cansofcom, that's our our command that handles our special operations. They are working something out, rightfully so. You know, obviously after the whatever eighteen years that we've kind of been at war, SF has really come to the forefront as the 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 that silver arrow, you know, in the in the quiver that that really good solution. So more and more, they should be enticing people to come in through those channels. So they are developing it. But when I came through, you had to, you had to serve some years in the uh, regular army. And the JTF2, that is Canada's tier one component. 
yeah, Joint Task Force 2, that's our Tier 1 solution. And then our Tier 2 solution is uh, CSOR, Canadian Special Operations Regiment. Right. And did was CSOR stood up recently? Yes. Yeah, so probably, I think it was around 2005, 2006. Don't quote me on that kind of stuff. Uh, at, at least the wheels were turning for it. And maybe it was already in motion that, you know, there was this gap between tier one and then nothing below. And, um, you know, obviously you guys had the, the seals and ODA and it was, it was kind of a no brainer for us to be like, okay, yeah, we need something like that as well. Right. Cause I, I would imagine there's only so much one unit can handle. Yeah. It's not just a manpower, but it's a mandate thing too. So, you know, the tier one realm, it, it doesn't matter what country you're from. Cause Britain, the SAS are going to have their mandate, right? Delta has their mandate. We have ours. Within that mandate, there's a lot of jobs that you can't handle, but you're kind of like, okay, yeah, okay, we could do that. But, yeah, you can spread yourself thin pretty quickly. So Seesaw right. um, was the uh, the next logical step. Right. So I would like to talk about some of the history of um, Canadian Special Forces. And what a lot of people don't know is that American and Canadian Special Forces have a common ancestor. Um, and uh, during World War II, there was a joint special operations unit that was American and Canadian. That's correct. Yeah, the Devil's Brigade. And uh, the Devil's Brigade did awesome work in Italy and a bunch of different other places. You know, Canada and the States have been um, watching each other's backs for a long time. And, yeah, that was the roots of it. And then it kind of... You know, we, I don't want to say separated, but went our own ways for a while. You know, the U.S. and Canada both dabbled around with different things. And then eventually we came to what we called the Airborne Regiment. So it's not like, don't think Airborne, how you guys would refer to an Airborne Qualified Ranger or something like that. Our Airborne was somewhere in that Tier 2 realm, a more um, readily available access unit if needed to be deployed. And then some things happen in Africa with them and the, um, I believe, you know, I'm, 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 I'd be butchering the number somewhere in the 80s, 90s, I think. Anyways, it was disbanded. And then sometime after that, our, our RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, had this unit called CERT Special Emergency Response Team, which was Canada's national counterterrorism unit at the time. And it was, it was a police unit was looking to, uh, you know, like unbelievably save money. So the RCMP wanted to offload this. The Canadian Armed Forces needed something to call their special forces. So we took that over. They trained us up a bit in their ways, went through their selections and stuff like that. And then the Army took it over for its own role, which kind of created a nice national and abroad counter-terrorist unit. And that's kind of the genesis to get to JTF2, and then once we had JTF2, CSOR was created. That was a little backwards, but yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Right. So even the name is kind of, I always kind of found it kind of interesting, um, whereas other units have like a name, like Navy SEALs or, or Green Berets. But with JTF2, it's Joint Task Force 2. That It almost sounds like a, just like a, a task group that's come together for a specific project. Yeah, that was the, uh, the idea, right? So when it went across people's tables and stuff it just it looked like another joint task force another joint task force another joint task force you know those are words that people are used to seeing 
And I, I guess it's a bit of a political move to allow, you know, flexibility and expediate things through all the bureaucracy that can be the government. So yeah, that kind of just stuck with us. And now it's just basically GTF two. you know, that's that mystique's long gone from its roots. Right. And I know like, for example, I'm doing the, like the height of the Iraq war, the, um, British SAS was operating alongside American 2-1 units in Iraq. Uh, but due to the government, um, they had sort of restrictions on the rules of engagement. And from what I understand, it was frustrating to them because uh, they felt like they couldn't be as effective as, um, you know, they were capable of being. Um, and and I, that's more politics than anything. Is that something that operators in, in Canada face as well? Well, you know, I, I know you understand the, the breadth of this question, John, that I think every single tier one unit knows how much more they could be doing. And I think we all deal with it at different times. I would love to get into some of the nuances that are really interesting here, especially, you know, Kurdistan timeframe and all that, 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 I, that I'll move aside from. What I do think is that every nation that at least five eyes and all those who want to get on the, 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 this team should just put together expeditionary forces that don't need, you know, that news coverage, that, that real kind of black ops to it. And we go solve some of the problems that are out there quickly, efficiently, you know, saving a lot of money, a lot of time without a lot of ruckus to perpetuate some of the things that, you know, once, once you kind of get entrenched in a country and then the news teams get behind it and everyone's saying stuff and the politics get in there, that's when it gets really messy. If, if the boys on the ground could just go do their job, go home all the time, everywhere, um, I think we'd clean up the mess really quick. Right, right, absolutely. And this is something I've spoken about in the past where I feel like a lot of times the rules of engagement for Western soldiers, special operations, infantry, really kind of saves the enemy in a lot of situations. Yeah. I will say this. When we were in Afghanistan, when I was there in 2008, our rules of engagement were really great. They were they were super, what we call robust, very flexible, right? But the way rules and engagement work is they kind of expand and then they contract down all the way, always at the base is self-defense, right? And... Yeah, the enemy has and will continue to use all our conventions, right? Uh, you know, our our rules of engagement are backed by things like Geneva Convention, our own country of origins, laws and rules, and the laws and rules of the countries that we're in, and all that kind of stuff. And that's what I that's what I was saying. Like, if we could step back, put the heads together, and create some really robust ones that the majority of the planet would be behind we would alleviate a lot of that um, kind of backing up a little. I remember times, I mean, I'm sure you've heard these stories about the, like the farmers in Afghanistan and stuff where they would, they would shoot at you, drop their gun and then start shoveling. Right. And there's, there's little you could do. Fortunately, like I was saying, by the time I got there, that wasn't the case. Intent was enough. And that solved a lot of problems because they, they couldn't hide behind that mask. And I think it was very effective. I think 
governments should be a little less scared to impose those kinds of things. I, I get it when we're talking about the ultimate taking lives, you know, good, evil, all that. It, it's a very broad kind of, you know, it's a huge topic and there's a lot of moving parts to it. But when it comes down to it, it guys know, hey, that's the bad guys. You know what I mean? And if nothing else, they're trying to kill us and or destroy our bigger ideals. So, yeah, I think a little more flexibility would be okay. And the public just needs to back it a little bit more, be less suspicious of governments and what the units are up to. These are all, you know, in our cases, Americans and Canadians, they're good dudes, you know, out doing the good work. Have some faith. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There was... um. I mean, obviously, there's a certain level of distrust between civilians and government. Um, and I think a certain level of skepticism is, is fine. It's healthy, yeah. Um, but, like, you know, if we're talking things, I'm not exactly sure how it is in Canada, but let's say for the U.S., you know, there's always this debate about around um, access to firearms and things like that. And... Um, you know, some people say things like, and these are like the super skeptical, oh, you know, the government's going to take over or they'll take over and, and um, you know, do whatever they want, you know, mass executions, whatever. And it's like, the usually from my understanding, the men and women who serve in, in a lot of these roles for the government are usually pretty solid people. So I felt like if the government just you know, snapped their fingers and decided to go tyrannical. Some of the best people in the country are working for the government. So I feel like that wouldn't really work out too well. Um, Yeah. I I think it's almost an absurd conclusion. I could tell you, I, I gave a lot to my government a lot, but there's no way I would be jumping at the snap of a finger for something that I didn't believe in. And I I think that's how most service men and women, whether it's in a first responder role or in the military role are at least in, in the Western countries that I've worked with, even some that aren't in the Western, you know, NATO block that I've been around, even them, you know, I, I would say most wouldn't do that. It, it would be too against their own, their own, you know, goodwill, good fortune. Right. And I think it kind of goes against some of the reasons why people serve in the first place. Yeah, the, the, uh, you honor those ideals, right? That what the what the flags stand for. You know, those can change over time, and and not every inch of it do you believe in. Um, I, I think that's always healthy. You know what I mean? That's if if you dogmatically follow anything, that's when you become a zealot, and that's when I think you know ISIS and stuff is formed. Um, but I, I even now as a, now I'm a civilian, I would. I would never expect that kind of thing to happen. And I, I, I get it. Governments aren't perfect. And I will be the first to say that even in my experience, governments aren't perfect, but they're not going to be doing that kind of stuff. Just have a little faith that these men and women have your best interests at heart. In the U.S., generally, I feel like there's a split between sort of liberal, conservative and liberals. And there's usually a solid support system for veterans and the military uh it wasn't always that way there were like different periods of ups and downs but now we're at a period where there seems to be general support for uh, american veterans is it similar in canada 
Well, I, you know, um, both and <laughs> kind of yes and no, right? Where we, there, there is, it, some people don't think that there was a lot created on the backs of soldiers that we have right now. Whether you think it's good or bad, you know, you put, take the morals out of it. They, it was delivered and to you and you're capable of experiencing it, whether it's like global economics or whatever, on the backs of soldiers. You know, the men and women who have come before and will come because it's not over yet, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I kind of lost track there, John. Sorry. Um, you were saying. No, that's OK. Um, j- just as like in the U.S. politically. Oh, the support, the support. Right, yeah, right, how people. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we have our Veterans Day. I would say the, the short answer is it's not the same. In the U.S., you know, you, you'll see kids saluting the guy with the Vietnam hat and stuff like that. They 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 pay that. You don't see that as much in Canada. I don't know if it's, you know, people kind of celebrate in private kind of thing or in their own minds because that, that's something Canadians kind of do. They don't um, share on that level the same way as um, Americans tend to. But we had our, our highway of heroes when uh, – you know, men and women who were killed in Afghanistan came home and they were repatriated. You know, that that highway, the overpasses and stuff were filled with people showing their support for those families who now had to deal with the actual hard part of all of this. Um, yeah, so I would say it's not quite as solid on the civilian side. As far as the government side, all the, the social programs and things like that, I, I, I think we're as good, if not maybe a notch better. But, I mean, how do you really measure that? Right. Right. Because I, I know generally, at least perception, uh, maybe it's not 100% accurate, but I do feel like conservatives, at least in the States, are more supportive of military and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's different levels to it. Um like obviously, like during the Vietnam War, there was a, a lot of sort of anti-military sentiment, um, and, but a lot of that has to do with politics and stuff like that. Um, so, the Canadian snipers are are sort of um, infamous for. I believe there were several really long sniper shots that different units have have uh, recorded. Uh, throughout these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I believe the longest one, the longest sniper shot ever recorded is belongs to JTF-2. Um, were you able to talk about that at all in any capacity? Or Yeah, I could I could dabble. What would you like to know? Like maybe, um, uh, maybe some of the circumstances surrounding it, or I'm not sure, you know, what level you can talk about it at. Well, I I guess I'll start with saying that I think, and I'm not exactly sure here, but I think we're starting to reach the the limit of exploitation, if you will, of shoulder-fired projectile weapons when it's starting to get into the 3.5 kilometer. I believe that's around 2.2, 2.3 miles. You know, optics are starting to run out. It's starting to get to that realm of, okay, it's going to be hard to to beat that one, Not, not to be like pessimistic about it it's just holy moly that's 
the things that have to be accounted for, for that kind of shot, you know, you got to account for the spin of the earth at this point and the direction it's going and the multiple wind vectors and, 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 and not to mention, you know, the circumstances of the shooter, you know, out there in that we were in an advise and assist role, helping out the uh, Kurds, of course, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And it it was awesome that it was just happened to be captured on video as actual proof, because I know there's a lot of skeptics out there who don't think it's possible, but our, our sniper troop is really quite fantastic. It's, I won't get into the depths of what I think is the base, the constructs like, you know, that made this, but one of them is that is our sniper unit is its own unit, if you will. And I'll leave it at that. But just that power led to this flexibility. Of course, in this, this day and age, there is no kind of I, right? We work with other tier one units and they have enabled us and we've enabled them into this journey, like BTF2, 1992, that's that's when it was born. That, that's a new tier one unit. And um, luckily we got ties with the SAS and uh, with our, our American allies and they've, you know, definitely instilled a lot of wisdom along the way in getting to these kinds of things, right? You don't just get to a, a shot like this without a big backstory, right? Right, right. There's years of training, joint training and experiences and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like you had mentioned, there was a multiple two kilometer shots done in Afghanistan from PPCLI or Princess Patricia's light infantry that, you know, those are all part of the steps getting here. Right. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a list now. And there's been several shots that were hit over 2,000 meters. I mean, that's kind of incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a bad day for the guy on the other end. Yeah, they're um, probably like, what the, who the fuck is shooting? That <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's uh, so much more to the story. I wish I could share. That would be great. It just again, you know, there, there's there's these people get up in arms. You mentioned kind of liberal conservative kind of side of things, and in Canada, they they were getting a little bit up in arms about it because we're there in an advise and assist role. We're not right. really there in an accompany role, but what they don't get is we're there training these people and we move with them just before and as close as we can, you know, before we're in that engagement area and then just the nature of combat, you know, that fog of war, it brings you into this. And, you know, like I was saying, self-defense comes into it and, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. It's it's such a complex thing, right? Um, it was, was it 2015, I think, um, or 2014? I think it was 2015. Um, there was a tier one, a U.S. tier one unit on the ground in um, Iraq, and they were there advising and assisting with the Kurdish special forces, and uh, there was a hostage rescue. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know the details of exactly what led to this action taking place but I, I believe it was something along the lines of they they couldn't breach the, the building they couldn't get in because there was heavy enemy fire and um, uh, an American Delta Force operator he he went in he breached the door and he was able to push and uh, he ended up getting killed but they were supposed to be there and, and advise and assist role um, 
so I, I guess, you know, just how you mentioned, things just happen on the battlefield that you can't really account for. Yeah, that that goes back to that trust the guy on the on the ground. That in 2015 was, and you know, I, I remember those exact circumstances a lot. I remember we kind of had, you know, this is just a moment of Canadian pride, but when it all kind of re-sparked back up and the, the the ISIS pushed towards Kurdistan and the Kurds put up their defenses, you know, we got in there and we were some of the first ones on the lines getting uh, snagging some ISIS. And that felt pretty good. But then it was like, okay, whoa, whoa, you know, okay, well, we got to redefine all this. Because when we had first, the generals had set the rules were advise, assist, and a company. And then quickly that was taken away, you know, politics, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's, you know, the guys are there to do the job. They've already said they're willing to do it, you know, kind of let them do the job. Right. And I think when you look at, like if you look at things from a historical standpoint, uh, during the you know the, the wars that decided the fate of the world, that really wasn't even a thing, you know. Um, so sort of these strict rules of engagement, and then if you look, if you want to go even further to sort of any conflict in human history, I, I believe now we're at a point where th- there's such strict rules for how you f- how you kill other human beings. Um, who are doing bad things to people. It's really kind of mind blowing when you look at it historically. Yeah. You know, we could dive into the existential question of good versus evil here, right? The whole, an eye for an eye leaves us all blind. You know, when do you use extreme violence? That's a big topic. And that, that's why I'll circle back to that kind of that expeditionary force construct where it's not that it won't be put out there. You know, we don't need to be making all this stuff public. It's just that we could deal with it quickly. And I think it's kind of, you know, the, how they say, you know, metaphorical or whatever, where you cut the, the head off another one grows back or two more grows back. Well, I think we can get ahead of that. And if we get ahead of that, that's when we can kind of get back and okay then, you know, all the psychology and sociology that'll take place about, you know, young set of young guys growing up to be terrorists, they can grow up to be doctors and lawyers, you know, all the complexities of that kind of stuff, the Charlie Wilson stuff. Right. So when you say get ahead of it, do you mean like sort of taking down entire networks before they can reform kind of thing? Yeah, well, let's look at Al Qaeda or Taliban or Boko Haram and all that. I won't get into the depths of it but there's so much intel on these things as they're kind of forming up and getting ready and then you know the 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 intelligence agencies and the militaries and et cetera et cetera that are watching all this are like hey you know prime minister president um look what's going on you know and of course the the prime minister president doesn't have an easy decision there of like oh yeah go get it go get it because you know there's usually borders involved and all that kind of stuff that's why i was saying if people could kind of step back and create this i know uh, it's I a see. little like a global alliance kind of thing where it'd be like no let's just go go deal with it you know the mass majority of people on the planet kind of agree hey let's go do this and i don't think it has to be all you know that's a big concept that many right. people getting together but you know 
NATO, UN, look at, look at how many times the Axis and allies in World War II, you know, people could come together. It doesn't have to be those dire con, uh, circumstances in order to implement something like this. And that's just kind of me a little bit vamping, you know what I mean? But right. I do, I do believe it would be much more efficient. It would, I think it would get the job done quicker. It would commit less of our young servicemen and women into the battlefields, if you will. So I, I think it could have some positive well, I know it would have positive impacts. Right. Well, that's a great point. Um, so two things I wanted to, to bring up. So I know, and I'm not sure how it worked with, you know, Canadian special ops. Uh, obviously, you would have a much better understanding of it. But I know during the height of the Iraq war, um, the mainly Delta Force and the SAS were really, uh, what they kind of say, they took the leash off of them, so to speak, and, and they were really allowed to go after all these networks and, and the whole uh, fine fixed feed and they were they were kind of breaking them apart before they can rebuild uh, using like tremendous speed and you know running several operations a night um, and I, I think that kind of broke the backs or well, that was part of what broke the backs of Al-Qaeda in Iraq um, and, and they were in many ways able to operate how they saw fit as far as uh, engaging the enemy. Um, and, and I think that made a, a, a big difference compared to in other situations where they're not really allowed to engage how they want to. Yeah, the speed at what, like we're talking a speed where in the same night, you know, your intel can lead you to the next thing, the next thing. They don't even have time to, to react, you know? It, right. It's just too fast for them, it's too fast. And that, that's how slick these units are. It, oh, it, like literally, you know, the entire of the um, almost intellectual and technological world is backed by, you know, especially in the Five Eyes community, <laughs> you know, satellites, every kind of plane, air stacks, you could, it, it's all there. It's ready to go. It's just time to do that again. And, and I get it. it it's, it's, we're talking about a, a big topic that, it's not cut and dry at best. That's why I, I think the more people that we can kind of open up to about these concepts, and I, I think it's slowly starting to happen. It, it, it'll take some time. Um, yeah, it, it was the same thing in you know, Afghanistan uh, after a few years of operating there. It was the same kind of feel. And then it was, you know, the same thing in Iraq part two in Kurdistan and but it does get complicated, right? We talked about the farmers in Afghanistan. Well, after a while, you don't even know. They're, they're, it's not even networks you're fighting. It's maybe it's people that just don't want you there. Do you know what I mean? Like now you're in your country all this time, even though like we've done tons of good, you know, schooling, they're, they're, they're Afghani, their money's worth went up. You got women in school, new schools opening, like tons of good stuff. It's just now we've kind of been lingering there a little bit long. And I, I think, I, I think, you know, as Canadian, myself, if someone was in my country that long, I, I would probably be like a little bit, okay, what's going on here, you know? So that, that's where it kind of gets complicated. And that's why I think doing it fast and being gone so that the good people that are in those countries don't get tainted and jaded. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, 
And in many ways, it's like, how can you fault somebody who's upset at, at you being there, who's who's not necessarily affiliated with any group or subscribes to some extreme ideology? You know, uh, there was a... And, and obviously, these I feel like some of these things aren't done purposely and, and we do have rules and uh, people do commit atrocities and war zones that go against the rules and things like that. But... Um, there was a situation, I forget the exact details, it was in Iraq, I don't remember the year, but it was uh, American engagement. And they, um, somebody on the ground called in an airstrike or something like that, a gun run on a, on a, on a position that it, these guys weren't terrorists, they were just protecting like a local mosque or something and they shot at the guys and then someone else ended up getting killed and it was a really big mess. And uh, they, some reporter years later interviewed the family of one of the, the guys who were killed, and and what he and he seemed like a sort of average regular guy. And he said, "I, you know, I swear something like I swear to God, if I ever see an American, I'm gonna kill him." And it's like, obviously the Americans there, they're gonna defend themselves, but how can you fault the guy for for hating us for something like that, you know? Yeah, that's that fog of war, right? That's what I was saying about getting ahead of it before it has time to psychologically and sociologically impact those mothers and children on the mothers and children on the ground. Right, right. So, Jeff, um, you've been out of the military for how long now? Uh, it's been a couple of years now. Okay, um, coming on two. Right. So now you 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 have a couple things that you are working on. Uh, can we talk about some of that? Yeah, sure. Sure. What would you like to know? Um, so let, let's talk about um, I was on your website. Um, the Special Forces Experience website. Can we talk about what that is? Yeah. So the Special Forces Experience dot com. It's a program that myself, some uh, American ex-military and then civilians on both sides of the border have put together. Uh, it's it's really, it's rooted in growth for civilian men around a military style experience. Something that a lot of people may or may not know is that the military is a master at breaking someone down and creating a new identity for them, right? No secret there, I guess. Along those tools that are used, though, there is some really strong tools to help individuals develop their character and their own identities and their value sets. And we've taken the, you know, nothing off the shelf that would betray the brotherhoods, of course, and put this into these programs developed specifically for civilian men. It's, you know, eight day. It, it's the mean potatoes, eight days, but it's divided up into four phases and it revolves around a bunch of different things, but one of them is post-traumatic growth. Yeah, that when I read that, that really stood out to me, the post-traumatic growth. And basically, as I understand it, is going through something tough that changes you, basically? Yeah. So I like to think of it as the big brother to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where, you know, leading up to the events could look very similar. And then you go through a traumatic event and two people can go through a traumatic event exactly the same. And on one, on the other side, and I know there's a lot of complexities to this, 
you know, there's all the physiological stuff. There's all the lead up, you know, your childhood, your coping mechanisms. There's a million things at play here. But the gist is you come into that traumatic event. And on the other side, one person develops a stress disorder and the other one grows from it, gets stronger. Their, you know, their their consciousness is kind of expanded and they're a little bit more intelligent. And this happens all the time. If you really think about your journey, even up until your point, you've gone through stressful things, whether it's given a talk or it, it can be almost anything that induces our fear responses, our, our stress responses. And you come out on the other side, you know, that weight is lifted and you've learned from this experience. You're a little bit stronger of a character on the other side. And we kind of went out on a limb with this because right now PTSD is getting a lot of momentum and you know, rightfully so. PTSD is real. I am not saying it's not. PTSD is not an affliction I would want to deal with. But we don't want to become the victims, right? So, you know, traumatic growth is the other option. And kind of the point of it is putting yourself into stressful situations, expanding your comfort zones and your horizons of consciousness on purpose so that when other stressful things happen in your life, your body's like, oh, I can deal with this. I know how to deal with this. Right. And I wanted to ask you, is that something like for a guy like yourself, is that something that you experience like mentally? Like, do you go through some you're in a situation that has nothing to do with the military and there's a kind of connect to maybe selection or something like that for you as far as difficulty and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I especially my adolescence, I would just push boundaries out of my comfort zones all the time. I was young and a little bit wild, so I, they weren't always in the best directions. But as time went on, I was able to, you know, vector those in appropriate directions more and more, you know, putting myself into those situations where I can expand a little bit more, whether it's some kind of, like I was saying about public speaking or something that's just, you know, for guys dealing with your feelings and emotions and talking about them, that that's something that a lot of guys feel very uncomfortable doing, you know? So it's, it's just about that whole thing. And I still like to, you know, go on a really hard rock or I like to climb. Um, I'm uh, constantly outside outdoors, pushing it in those environments to keep pushing. You know, I got to be a little bit more careful now. My body's a little bit more broken. My, my shoulder is going to need some surgery because it's dislocated. I am carrying around this tropical disease. It's non-contagious, but you know, it's always kind of lingering in me. I, I landed on an upside down car, fast roping out of a helicopter and flattened out my arch and my one foot, you know, I got a bad back. So I, I got to be careful with these things, right. but you can always kind of find new ways to do it. Right. New little experiences here and there just to improve yourself a little bit more, a little bit more. And now at this point in my life, lots more of it is focused outwardly to lower the collective and what I can do myself for that greater good. That's awesome. Do you climb like, do you do like big mountain climbing or? Well, when I, I, I do both. So I'm in uh, Sedona, Arizona right now, and I like to get out at least Boulder a few times a week. And then I like to climb a little bit more substantial walls every now and then. In February, I'm going to get back into the backcountry and into the alpine stuff. Um, mostly just get out and hit the powder, you know. But I, I do like to get up into those ranges. Uh, we'll be spending a week out there kind of sleeping in snow caves and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I do nice. like that kind of kind of thing. I'm, as I mentioned, I just retired a couple of years ago. I've been building up these programs 
you know, my wife and I started a couple businesses along the way, you know, real estate investment and all that kind of stuff. And like I just mentioned, I'm really concerned about the longevity of my body. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not doing great. So I'm trying to get that in order and then I'm going to pick my, my next directions, you know, like January, I'm heading to Costa Rica to do kiteboarding and I'll probably do something like the qualifier for like a did a rod or something like that. I, uh, like I said, I've been kind of focusing outwardly a little bit more than inwardly. I'm, I'm looking, I'm always looking to get into something else, you know? Nice. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, um, so for like some of the, the climbing stuff, did you do any of that in the military or is that all like recreational for you? Well, I, I started climbing uh, as a young teenager and then in the military, yeah, we got into that more and more, you know, we, once you like, at least our unit, the tier one unit, we try to have every insertion method possible, right. <laughs> you know, at least somewhat again, so you can put it on the shelf and pull it out and activate it when you need to. Cause it's so hard to have every one of them perfected, but yeah, it, it goes to that there's no experiences that are bad experiences and everything you do to push your comfort zones, learn a little bit more makes you a better operator. And I think that's why programs like the special forces experience.com are so great because it's totally geared for men. Literally we researched it for almost two years and designed it for men, civilian men, of course, who, are seeking that, you know, men like challenge, they like discovery, they like growth, they like real hierarchy, they like to see where they fit in. So we put this program together for them just because of those natural urges that most men have. And for that program, when you guys do the the meetup part of it, does that take place in Canada? Yeah, so it's going to move around. Right now, there's a few uh, networks that are looking at maybe turning into a show and, you know, we're dabbling, we're kind of dancing around with what that looks like, but it, it we're, we're going to hopefully move it. So there are some challenges because of some of the logistics in it of where we can go other countries and stuff like that. But yeah, it'll move around. Um, we just haven't gotten to that point yet. We're going into our second serial and it's in a little bit of a different place than the last one was. And, we're probably going to head out west for the next one, but that's kind of just speculation for now because things are unfolding very quickly. And for people who want to sign up for this, uh, how does that work? Well, um, you can check out our, our website, the special once again. <laughs> and there's two programs there. There's the process and then there's the trials. So we'll call the trials that the junior version, if you will, or the, the potentially the first step, which isn't as time involving or there's the process and the process you have to apply, you have to be selected. So it's not just, you know, paying you show up. We comb through a bunch of people for a whole bunch of different reasons because it is extremely physically, mentally and psychologically draining. So not everyone's cut out for it right now. And if you are picked, you know, you go through the whole rigmaroles and then there's there's a, the months leading up where you're going to have a bunch of stuff to do to help you get ready in the physical, mental and, um, you know, mental rigidity realms. And plus what we do is we start combing through your personality and then you come into the eight day portion, which is the phase three. And then that's when we really dive into your behavioral profile. And then there's afterwards. 
So afterwards, phase four, you can go into the trials program, which is all about physiological and psychological development so that you can self-coach yourself. And if you step back, what it is, is this cycle that's the same for post-traumatic growth. So on the front end, you do everything you can to prep for that stressful moment. You go deal with the stressful moment. And then on the other side of it, you do all the things that take care and make sure that you grow from the experience. Right. So a kind of full spectrum of, of what, what you're kind of ter- coining as uh, post-traumatic growth. Yes, exactly. And the idea of it is that when you're done it, you can step back and we've added some more tools in your tool belt for you to go and do this same cycle through life. It doesn't always have to be, you know, mountain climbing per se. It could be like I was saying, digging into your shadows and blind spots, which can be very tough for people, super emotionally draining, but they're, they're the same kind of cycles. You know what I mean? You prep for it, you deal with it, and then you're on the other end and then you live on with these tools that we've given you. So if anyone in the audience wants to connect with you, uh, is there any place they can do that? Like social media or something? Uh, we are on Instagram, uh, the Special Forces Experience. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much the one, that or the website. The website has all the stuff to get you down the rabbit hole. Okay. All right, cool. Um, I, I appreciate you coming on to speak, Jeff. Um you know, it was, it was interesting. I, I know that my audience is going to find some value in it, um, especially since I've never had someone from with your experience on before. Oh, I appreciate it, John. It's always fun to start to dabble in those realms of uh, what, you know truth, where there is no black and white, and try to figure out some ideas. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, again, thank you for coming on, Jeff. I really do appreciate it. All right, thanks, John.
Thank you.